today, uh, we're going to be continuing our series, uh, Prodigal Finding Home. And in this three-part series, we're going to be examining the three main characters of the parable uh, of the prodigal son found in Luke 15. And as we examine the younger son, the older son, and then as we conclude with wrapping uh, of looking at the father, I pray that we can see this powerful and comforting message of the gospel that not only speaks to the people of Jesus' time, but speak to us today in the year 2020. You know, know, I was uh, looking back at my sermon notes and uh, reflecting on last week's message, and I realized uh, I have a lot to say. Uh, And that could be seen as a good thing, but that could also mean that, you know, someone has to listen to everything that I have to say, which could not be a good thing. Um, And I realized there was so much more, actually, that I wanted to say, despite the fact that I spoke so much. Um, And I was a little bummed out because, uh, you know, this is definitely probably my favorite parable uh, and favorite thing to talk about. Yet there were so many things that I kind of left out and wish I kind of had included. Um, But... Uh, regardless, uh, I hope you are still able to be blessed by last week's message as we examined the younger son. And we took the time, uh, just to recap very briefly, we looked at this aspect of shame, and especially in the younger son, and we see that the younger son makes a shameless request, he then commits a shameless act of rebellion, and then he shamefully repents and comes back to the father. So we concluded last week Um, as we saw in the younger son, that the prodigal son, the younger son, reminds us that God's grace is inexhaustible. You can never out-sin God's forgiveness and His grace. Amen? And that's such a beautiful thing to remind ourselves as we look at the younger son in his shameless reaction and responses and his shameful repentance that no matter what, God's forgiveness and grace never can be out-sinned by us. And we concluded also, uh, we talked about how God loves to save the lost. As we look at all of Luke 15, but especially in this parable. And the fact is, is we're lost. We're homesick. And and we have to acknowledge this idea that we are lost and we are in need of a return to the Father. And, um, you know, in our return to the Father, wherever you may be, we may think that, you know, oh, well, God, just give me the least because I have done the worst. Then don't, you know, don't, don't over, overflow too much. Just, just give me the bare minimum. But we realize that God has a big surprise for each and every one of us because God wants to give us more than we think we deserve. Now, uh, today, we're going to be journeying on to the second character, which I believe is actually the main character of this parable, and that is the older son. And you might be wondering, well, isn't this the parable, the prodigal son? And when we talk about the prodigal son, we talk about the son that goes off and spends his father's inheritance and uh, goes off in wasteful living. Like, isn't that the main character of the story? Uh, And you're right. Uh, The prodigal son is referring to the younger son. Uh, And a lot of times we as a church and a lot of like Christian circles tend to focus on the younger son. Uh, and, 
and we point to that rebellious son as us, right? And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. I do that all the time. And this is why I fell in love with the parable, was because I saw myself as that younger son, going off and living a rebellious life and being able to recognize and acknowledge the brokenness and the fact that I was living in the pig pen of life, that I could come back to the Father. And, and as broken, as shameful as I was, that God was willing to forgive me and to accept me regardless. And this is why I fell in love with it. And so a lot of us, we have this tendency to do that. But very interestingly, if you look at the entirety of this story in Luke 15, we found out very quickly that the older son is actually the main character, and it's talking more about him than it is the younger son. Now, if I was to uh, actually put the Bible together and put the labels and the titles of these different things, I think I would uh, name this parable in particular, not the story of the lost son or the prodigal son, as some of your Bibles may have titled it, but rather, I think more appropriately, we could call it the parable of the lost sons, plural. Uh, and obviously, last week, we talked about the first lost son. But today, we're going to focus a little bit more and pull out a few key points about the older son, who was also lost. To begin, uh, let's actually read the rest of the parable that we left off from last week. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 25 to 31, uh, or 32. And this is what the Bible says. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You see, this part or this ending of the parable of the prodigal son uh, tends to be the forgotten part in a lot of children's stories and Christian circles and, and videos that we watch about this parable or even in sermons. Um, we don't talk about this uh, because frankly speaking, uh, what we just read, it just kind of sounds uh, very odd. Um, and not only that, it, like, the whole story just doesn't seem to be about the older brother, right? Uh, there's this kind of connotation as the story begins talking about this younger son, we wouldn't think that the older son is the main character uh, because it doesn't start that way. Uh, but when we look at all of chapter 15, um, remember these, these parables found in Luke chapter 15 uh, are considered the parables of the lost. Right? We have the lost sheep, we have the lost coin, and then we have our story today, the lost son. And it seems to be perfect to simply end with the story of the younger son returning and the party and the celebration. But then verse 25, it begins with this, now his older son, right, was in the field. And it's like, okay, like, why are we talking about the older son now? Why you got to ruin a perfectly good Disney ending, 
right? Now, first and foremost, uh, we mentioned this last week, actually, and we talked about it, uh, but we need to remember the context. And obviously, hopefully by now, you know, I'm a huge fan of looking at the context of our stories, looking at the context of the Bible verses that we read, just looking at the context in general of anything. Um, and so we have to remember the context of this story. So we're going to rewind and we're going to backtrack into Jesus's time. And we're going to try to understand the audience and the reasoning of why Jesus is telling these parables. Okay. So this may be a little bit of review, but important. Okay. So the Pharisees of Jesus's time, what are they trying to do? They're trying to kill Jesus. They're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to catch him in something that he says. They want to, they want to get rid of this, this enemy threat to them, right? And so they're looking and they're nitpicking at the things that Jesus is teaching, the things that Jesus is saying, the things that Jesus is doing. And um, they want to catch him and they want to find him at fault. And as we look at the narrative of the gospel and we see the life and the ministry of Jesus, right? The Pharisees were clearly upset with this man or Jesus because of the things that he did, of course, of the things that he taught. But especially in the book of Luke, we find that because Jesus was eating with tax collectors, he was hanging out with the outcasts of society, this, this kind of bitterness towards Jesus for doing this kind of thing was really what irked the Pharisees. And you see, Jesus was definitely going against the status quo, against the norm of society. And he did things that supposedly normal godly people um, uh, were not supposed to do. And he was doing all of those things. He was definitely going against uh, the grain of the woods, right, so to say. He was definitely making splinters happen uh, while the Pharisees were trying to abide by the traditions and the laws and, and all of that uh, stuff. You see, Jesus, in sharing this parable, uh, was directly talking to the Pharisees. Okay? He was speaking this parable to them. Yes, there may have been an audience. Most likely there was a group of people listening. But more particularly, Jesus was pinpointing the Pharisees because Jesus wanted the Pharisees to understand the intense love that God has for those that are lost and the rejoicing that takes place when the lost are found. Now, we may look at this and say, well, I mean, I mean, this sounds like it could be a message just for anyone to understand the intense love of, of God and the rejoicing that God has when the lost are found. But the reason why I believe Jesus was pinpointing and targeting exactly the Pharisees is because when we look at the actions and the behavior and the intention of the Pharisees, we see that for them, especially for them, there is no room at the dinner table for those that are lost. Right? Yet Jesus was trying to teach them through this parable about God and his love of saving the lost. So clearly, you see, Jesus is pointing at the heart of the Pharisees, letting them know that they're actually not as righteous as they think they are. Hear me out. I want to focus on this aspect uh, for the rest of today, and we'll pull out a few key lessons as we talk about the older son. But the overall lesson today is this. Your proximity to things about God is not at all the same as your proximity to God. Now, let's dive into the text and let's really pull out what I mean by this. Now, when we continue our story, first of all, we find uh, the scene where the older brother was out in the field, right? Um, he's working hard, but as he approaches the home, he begins to hear this sound and this commotion, right? He could hear the music and dancing, 
right? And he's thinking, man, isn't this odd? Like, what, what event is going on? Did, did I miss something at the breakfast table when I was with my dad? Like, what is happening that I was not able to realize uh, that there was a party going on uh, today, right? You see, the, clearly, the older son had no clue uh, that his younger brother had actually returned. Now, think about this. How big of an estate or how big of a property did this father own that the son, the older son, had no idea that something like this was going on? Very clearly, in the context of this parable, Jesus is implying that the father had a very, very big amount of property and, and land. It must have been so big that uh, he doesn't even go to the father directly when he hears all this sound. Rather, he has to talk to somebody on the outskirts of the party, some servant that's probably you know, dancing and singing and celebrating as well, just kind of on the outskirts. And so he, the older son goes to the servant and asks him, what, what is going on? What, what is this party that's happening that I had no idea about? You see, um, another interesting fact, uh, traditionally, in the case of a party, especially in, in Jesus' time, it was usually the firstborn that was in charge of the organizing and the making of this thing happen. But get this, at the beginning of the parable, okay, the younger son asks for uh, his share of the inheritance or his father's livelihood, and the father gives accordingly. Right? And we talked about how it was probably because he was the younger son, he probably received about one third of the estate, while the older son, uh, the remaining property of the father, uh, was given to him. So basically, he would receive two thirds of it, and the younger son, one third. And we know that the younger son goes off and he sells the rights to the father's estate because technically the father is not dead yet, and then goes off and spends it all while the older son stays at home. And it's interesting because uh, we think that it's only the younger son that receives the inheritance, that receives the father's livelihood. But if you look at verse 12, it says, So he, the father, okay, divided to them, okay, not to the son, but them, the sons, his livelihood. Now, I, I didn't know about you, uh, but this really caught me off guard, right? Because if you follow through with the logic, this is the thing. Both sons, not just the younger son, but both the younger and the older son receive the father's inheritance, even though the father had not passed away yet, right? Remember, the asking of inheritance, the asking of their father's livelihood is basically asking them to be dead, right? Because only dead people can give an inheritance. Well, yeah. So, and, and this is the thing that's really odd, okay? That both of the sons got their share of the inheritance, Younger one sold it off for pocket money and spent it all, while the older one stayed home, maintained it, and took care of it and kept it in his, his own care. So he did what traditionally would have been a scene of acceptance and of honor. Right? The older son was following the tradition. The older son was following the typical path that they were supposed to do when they would receive the, the father's inheritance. So he was the model son. Right? Uh, and like I said, Technically, the inheritance or the estate is given to the children. Uh, it happens after the fact that the father has passed away. So it's odd that the father is still alive, yet all of his assets, his properties, is given uh, and distributed to his children. 
Now, I don't know if you're following me on why I shared this with you, but this means that the resources that were being used by the father to have the celebration in this party wasn't that of the younger sons. It wasn't the father's, but because technically he had given it to the older son, now the father was using the older son's property, right? His share of the two-thirds of the estate was now being used to celebrate the party of the younger son, the first or the second son, right? And we find here, and this is a detail that's not included in the parable, that Jesus is, without consulting the older son and the use of his property, is simply just using it, right? And of course, I mean, legally, if we think about it, right, like I said, inheritance is only given to those once that person has passed away. So technically, because the father hasn't passed away, uh, legally, I guess it's still his, right? Um, but what you see is, is the father's failure to reach out to the older son uh, shows that there was now a disc or there was this disconnect between the older son and the father and, and that to his younger brother as well. Okay? And I thought this was really interesting. But anyways, let's just keep going. Uh, the older brother, okay, after he asks the servant and tries to inquire what in the world is going on, uh, he hears the news and uh, there's this wonderful, beautiful, great, uh, news that's it's shared, right? Your brother is alive. Okay. Your brother came back. So your father has killed the fatted calf. He's having a party, right? Now, I think most of us, when we hear this story, uh, most of us in our right minds would think, wow, what a wonderful story, right? This definitely is like a Disney ending type of story. The son who was once lost is found, but unfortunately, we find a very odd and very different response from the older son. He's angry. He's furious. Right? The fact that this shameful, disrespectful loser decided to show up back at the home, right? that he had the audacity to come back to the father, and, and even the fact that the father accepted this sore, like, sore loser of a brother, okay? what makes this even worse is that the servant uses this language uh, and he says, safe and sound. Your brother is safe and sound. Okay? But this not only refers to the physical safety of an individual, uh, as we would typically think, but in the Greek, it has this connotation that refers to peace. Right? As in, the father has now accepted the younger son without the need for him to work his way back into the family. Right? Remember that in this culture, it was about if you make a mistake, then you have to work your way back up into the family. You have to earn your spot as the son of a family. You don't just get it given to you just like that. And so when the, the servant shares that the, the son is, the brother is uh, safe and sound, he's saying that the father has simply accepted him regardless and is not asking for anything back. You see, the older brother's response was anger. He didn't even want to go and celebrate, right? He was fed up. He was disgusted. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. His response shows us that, for one, he had no love for his younger brother, nor did he have love for his father. You see, he failed to understand his father's unmerited favor, his free forgiveness, and the deliverance from his shameful actions. You see, when we look at this, we would think, man, this terrible. What a pity that the older son would respond in this way. But remember now, the original audience of this story is the Pharisees, right? And in the Pharisees' mind, do you know what they're thinking? 
when they hear this response of the older son, we think like, ah, oh, terrible. How can, how can he respond that way? It's his brother, right? But in the Pharisees' mind, they're like, oh, wonderful. That is such a great response. At least one person in this story has some logical sense, okay? The older son would have received applaud, received compliments from the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been thinking, of course, this older son has to uphold the family uh, honor. And his actions were clearly righteous. He was doing the right thing. You see, the Pharisees would have seen the father's forgiveness as an embarrassment and the son's return as a complete disgrace to the family. Church, the truth is, the older son was much more lost than the younger son. And I mean by a lot. And it's not even close. Okay. Now, the next part of the story always gets me. Okay. Uh, I think it's actually one of the more overlooked parts of the story. Uh, despite the older son's reaction, guess what happens? Exactly, right? Okay, I know what you're thinking. The father goes out. Okay? He leaves the party and goes out to the pouting and very upset older son. And he begins to plead with him to come and join in on the celebration. And I think this is beautiful. The response of the father wasn't like, hey, get your act together, you buffoon. Like, what is wrong with you? It's your brother, right? No. The father doesn't respond that way. But rather we find the father's response of love. It's like, no, son, come and join in this beautiful celebration. However, this loving plea from the father to the older son is met with a very subtle uh, evidence of disapproval and bitterness. And in his response, we find four different characteristics of the older son. And we're going to look at this response and we'll pull out these four things for you. The older son blurts out in verse 29 and 30. He says, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commands, commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured his livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, remember, last week we talked about this culture of, that was founded very much on shame and honor. But also this culture was very much founded on this, this, this concept of respect, right? And I mean, I think that's something that we can all understand even now, right? Especially in this Korean culture, uh, and actually for Asian cultures uh, in general, right? It's founded on this ideal of respect. Think about it, right? You're not supposed to look at older people directly into the eyes, right? You're supposed to use two hands when you receive anything, right? You have to bow 90 degrees, Right? Say yes and not yeah, right? Because that sounds really disrespectful. Say mother and father instead of mom and dad. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not for you, but at least I had to grow up that way, right? But do you know what I mean? But what we find here in the older son's response to the father, okay? He doesn't show any respect. He's completely lost it. He's caught up in his anger. He doesn't even use honorifics, right? He doesn't say, father, right? He says, low. Or in maybe some of your translations, it says, look. And this is exactly the same thing as saying, hey, you, right? Now, parents, imagine your children coming up to you and saying, hey, you, right? That wouldn't feel too good. And kids, uh, I'm sure all of you in your right mind would never say that to your parents or somebody of, of high honor, right? To make things worse, what this older son does is he, he pulls this card and says, hey, check the tape, right? Look, I've never done anything wrong at any time. I've never neglected a commandment of yours, ever. You see, 
What happens here is the older son falls into this trap called self-righteousness. Look, I've never disobeyed you. Look at all the things that I've done. Look how good I've been. I'm the model student. I've worked under you for how long? And what do I get? Right? The first characteristic of the older son is this. He thought because he obeyed the rules that he deserved blessings. You see, how many of us have found ourselves reasoning with God this way? Like, hey God, I did my part. Why don't you do yours now? Why don't you provide for me? Look at what I've done. Maybe you've caught yourself thinking this way once or twice. Maybe you've caught yourself making this checklist of, well, if I do these things, then I'll make it, right? I'll be fine. That if I do this, then I'll get to heaven. If I do this, then God will show me favor. And then we move on. He says, look, you never gave me a young goat so that I can go celebrate or make merry with my friends. This is the second characteristic of the older son. His motive was to receive and not to show love to his father. You see, the older son wasn't interested in the, the father, wasn't interested in his brother. Rather, he just wanted things for himself. His motives were about his own interest. He wanted a party with his friends and not even his family. For the older son, it wasn't about what he could do for his father. It was about what the father could do for him. Have we ever caught ourselves doing this? God, I'm going to go to church and read my Bible. So give me my checklist of things that I want. God, give me a better job because I do my devotions every morning. Give me more money. Right? Let's move on to the next characteristic. You see, first of all, the older son clearly has now disassociated himself with the father and also the son. Right? He was clearly fed up. Right? He doesn't even say, oh, my brother. He says, this son of yours. Right? The third characteristic of the older son is this. He thought his brother's sinfulness was unforgivable. We look at people and we do the same. We think like, no, absolutely not. God can't forgive a sinner like that. That's a terrible sin. That's an evil sin. She's a witch. He's a terrible, evil man. We judge and we look at others and we say, God, how can you forgive that person? That person doesn't deserve forgiveness. But man, must we be reminded to look at the plank in our own eye before we look at the speck in somebody else's. And finally, the older son finishes his response by saying, Hey, despite how much I approve of this younger brother of mine, despite how angry and upset I am by his actions, I'm disappointed in you. Yet you decide to hold a party using my assets, using my part of the inheritance on this son. You see, the fourth characteristic is this. He resented his father's joy and he refused to share in it. You see very clearly, as hopefully by now you see, that the older son was clearly sick and tired of this whole situation. He was done. He didn't want anything to do with the father's joy of, of finding this once lost son. He didn't want to join in the party. He didn't want to share the father's heart. He didn't want to share the father's joy. But hear me out, church. As Christians, our hearts should be broken by the very things that break the heart of God. 
And likewise, our hearts should be filled with the joy that also fills the Father's heart. Yet the older son clearly does not want anything to do with this. And I feel like sometimes when we look at the older son, the reality is, is we're looking at a mirror. Now, let's go back to the story. And let's flip back to the father. If we're listening to this story in Jesus' time, and in this context, all of us would be thinking, oh man, this older son is going to get it hard. He's going to get beaten. He's going to get disowned. And we're thinking like, wow, so disrespectful. The older son has no right to speak this way to the father. We would think that this was the ultimate form of disrespect. And that would have been very normal to think this way. But no, rather, we find a very loving response from the father instead. Verse 31 and verse 32 says, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Man, I really wish when I study the Bible, and look at the English language. I always wish that English was a little bit more descriptive because the meaning always gets lost in translation, especially from the Hebrew and Greek to to English. It always gets lost. But in the Greek, the word found here, the father's response, son, um, which is uh, uh, huos, right? As you see here, huos, it's used in the father's response, is actually not the same word that we find in verse 11, in verse 13, in verse 19, uh, 21, 24, 25, and 30. But rather, it's a different word uh, for son. And it's uh, tegnon, tegnon, okay? T-E-K-N-O-N. And it's actually a more affectionate and loving form of the word son, right? It's basically saying like, like my beautiful child. Right? So the father is using a very different word. For the first time in this whole story, He refers to his son as his own special child. You see, the father finishes response and he says, you know, despite the fact that you have insulted me, despite the fact that you you have tried to disown me and disown your younger brother, I want you to come and join in in this celebration. You see, I'm not going to disown the younger brother and I'm not going to disown you either. So come, swallow up your pride. And just join us in this this party and celebration. And the father is, in essence, asking this question, Older son, will you join or will you not? And imagine with me, if we're in Jesus' time and we're listening to this parable unfold, we're thinking, okay, what is this older son going to do now? The cards have been then turned, the table is turned, and now it's on to the older son. How is he going to respond to this loving response? And I love this. Because Jesus leaves us on a cliffhanger. Now, uh, imagine this scene with me, right? Jesus is telling the story and all these people around him listening. And as soon as he finishes, I can imagine as he leaves it on a cliffhanger, he takes a glance and a look at the Pharisees that are in the back of the audience. And he just kind of gives them that look, you know? Like, so what's your response, Right? I love the way that Jesus does this. And I love the way that Jesus leaves these things on cliffhangers because it's a challenge and it's a call for us to finish the story. What is the story going to look like now? Are we going to join in on the celebration or are we not? 
You see, the older son in the story that Jesus is referring to is talking directly to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the older son in the parable. You see, the Pharisees are the self-righteous ones. Now we think like, oh, wow, great pastor. Like, thank, thankful that you uh, have not said that it was us, right? It's not me. I'm not the self-righteous one. But the unfortunate news is this, church. Yes, many of us can simply relate to the younger son, the lost younger son, and we can associate ourselves with him and, 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 and we can over-relate uh, ourselves um, and, and say like, yeah, like we're the ones that rebel and run off and do our own thing. But so much more, we can relate to the older son as well and associate his wrong of self-righteousness to us as well. You see, you may be an exceptional, but you are no exception to this rule. You see, what we have to realize is that just like the Pharisees who adhere to the laws, to the teachings of the scripture, how true is it that we too, we look to our Bibles We look at the rules and the regulations of what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. And then we measure ourselves in accordance to that, right? We're like, hey, I have a strong relationship with God because I do this, this, and this, right? I read my Bible every day. I pray every morning and every night. I go to church all the time. I don't fall asleep during Pastor Tim's sermons, right? And then this becomes our actions and the things that we do. This becomes the measuring stick of our proximity to God, of how close we are to Him. Now, I'm not trying to say reading the Bible, praying, uh, going to church, um, you know, staying awake during my sermons. I'm not saying that these are, are bad things in itself. These are all very good things. Okay? But if this is how we determine our walk with God, I think we miss the bigger picture. You see, this is the point. Our proximity to God is not how close we think we are to God. It's the reality of how close God is already to us. You see, in our story, we find that the two sons, both of them were lost. It wasn't one was lost and the other wasn't. They were both lost. Receive the invitation of unmerited favor, of free forgiveness and love. And we might think, well, it looks like the older son doesn't have a resolution. We don't know his response, but I think this was very intentional by Jesus because it's an opportunity for us to now write the ending of the story. Will we choose to recognize and see that we too are lost, that we are all lost, that we are all homesick, that we are all in need of God's unmerited favor, his free forgiveness and his love. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I don't want to paint a picture that one son was good and the other son was bad. Both are bad and both have done wrong. But the common denominator between the two of these sons is the fact that both are still loved by God. They are both still loved by the Father. You see, the gospel message, the message that Jesus was trying to convey was that even the Pharisees, the ones who thought and saw themselves as close to God because of their deeds, the ones that saw themselves as close to God because of their actions and their obedience to the law and the commands, the ones that didn't disobey and did everything right according to the scriptures, were missing the big picture that when the lost are saved, it's a time for joyful celebration. And they were missing that big picture. 
as the Pharisees found themselves in a situation where they believed and saw themselves as a group of people that earned God's favor through their works. They encountered this Jesus who is giving that very favor to the low lives, to the outcasts, to the tax collectors, the loners, and the losers of society. And you can see that the Pharisees noticed this and they absolutely resent it. And that's why they're trying to get rid of him. Right? They hated it. They absolutely did not like it. And just like the older son in our story, someone so undeserving, someone so, so disgusting, receives the favor of the Father. Now fast forward and look at us in the year 2020. Whether you see yourself as the younger son or whether you see yourself as the older. You see, Christ urges us, the Father urges us to look at ourselves to acknowledge the guilt, to acknowledge our homesickness, to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, and to ultimately run back to the Father in celebration. Church, as we looked at the, the older son today, as we close, I want to challenge us and encourage us to take the time to reflect on our own spiritual journey and walk. Have I fallen into the trap of self-righteousness? In what ways have I tried to justify how close I am to God? How have I blinded myself to the comforting and powerful message of the gospel because of my self-righteousness? See, I'm not here to discourage you today, church, but rather I want to encourage you and challenge you in your faith to take a step back, to acknowledge and recognize the condition that we all find ourselves in, to acknowledge and recognize that it's our self-righteousness that holds us back from seeing the bigger picture of what God's gospel message is all about. You see, it's not about us trying to do things to make ourselves closer to God. It's all about a God that's who's already very close to us. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God because He's already there, ready to celebrate and party with you because He wants you to receive unmerited favor, free forgiveness, and His love. Let's pray.